This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Welcome back, all you bright eyes and bushy tails. Today, we've got Dr. Elisa Hallerman joining us. Dr. Hallerman is an attorney and member of the New York State Bar Association. She was a highly successful talent agent in Beverly Hills for over a decade. She holds a master's and doctorate in depth psychology and somatic studies focusing on neuroscience and trauma. She's a drug and alcohol counselor and certified in yogic science for addictive behavior and has been in recovery herself since 2002. Needless to say, this is going to be fascinating. Let's go to Dr. Hallerman. Dr. Elisa Hallerman, welcome to Champagne Problems. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for having me, Patrick and Robbie. Of course. Of, yeah. Of course. We're delighted to have you on. Shout out to Gabby Bernstein for putting us together. Yes. Awesome. Always. Yep. Yep. All right. So we're going to dive right in. We do some rapid fire questions right up front just to get to know you some quick. We, you know, not let you know what we're going to ask, see how you answer and really, really okay. dissect it. Okay. What was your first live concert and where was it? I want to say it was either Duran Duran or Holland Oats. Yes! And it was nice. probably at Madison Square Garden. Oh, oh cool. Great answer. Great answer. What food is your guilty pleasure? Pizza. Beautiful. What makes you lose your temper like a child? <laughs> I I really don't lose my temper that much. I guess dishonesty. Nice. Dishonesty. When someone's dishonest or untrustworthy. Pisses yeah. you off. Right. Yeah. What pisses you off? Dishonesty. Got it. Doesn't feel dishonesty. good. Doesn't feel good. Mm -mm. None of us like that. What movie have you seen the most times? Um, I think it's probably a top, you know, when we work in the movie industry, we have to watch the movies that we're yes. making yes. 5,000 times uh -huh. to see the different cuts. So I would say probably my top three movies that I've seen the most are It's a Wonderful Life, Grease when I was a kid, <laughs> and Wedding Crashers when I worked in the industry. Yeah. <laughs> One of my faves. God, I would love to dig into some of that, but we'll we'll have to hold off. What what's your favorite view? Like outdoor like place? Ocean. Any ocean. Oh, specifically? Uh, sure. Sure. Yeah, I'd say just any any ocean, but maybe specifically off the coast of Kauai on Ooh. the North Shore. Ooh. In Hanalei. Hanalei. Oh my God. <laughs> a honeymoon there. It's like just dream. I've always say I'm going to yeah. reti retire to Hanalei Bay. Yeah. Yeah. Love so, it. So let's start with uh, your lawyer career. So you started off as a lawyer in New York. What yes. were you practicing and, and how did that get started? So I was practicing what I really wanted to practice was criminal law. And I couldn't get a job um, at any place that I wanted to. And I ended up working at a small firm doing real estate and personal injury. And I was able to litigate and go to court all the time. And so that was sort of the benefit of working at a really small firm was that I was in court every day. But although that seems like it might be really glamorous or exciting from what we see on television, that sort of schlepping around New York City to all the five boroughs with these big red wells of, you know, information in the freezing cold and going into these like really nasty courthouses in some of the places. <laughs> Sounds like fun. Not <laughs> as all as they make it out to be at all. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound great. How, lo at all. how long did you practice law? I only practiced for probably a little under two years, not long at all. Oh, okay. Um, I really was unhappy living in New York city. I just, I, I just won. I, I was over. It was too much for me. The energy was too much. I was cold. It was just, I just wasn't enjoying it. I also was living with a guy that I knew I wasn't going to end up with. And so when my sister was graduating from college and moving to LA and said, why don't you just come with me? My 
answer right away was, okay, let's go. I love it. If you're cold, naturally go to California. Exactly. (laughs) So how did you end up in the talent agency world? Like how did that transition take place? So this was in the 90s before the internet. So I didn't really know anything about, you know, coming from New York, growing up on Long Island. I didn't know anything about the the entertainment industry at all. I didn't understand. I didn't know what a talent agent was. This was just all, un, you know, unknown to me. So I got here and I knew that I didn't want to be a lawyer. I knew I wasn't going to take the California bar So I started working as a cocktail waitress um, in a sports bar in Westwood. And like any budding alcoholic would as a lawyer. And (laughs) yeah, so beach during the day, cocktail waitress at night. Uh, And life. (laughs) Living the dream, you know, wearing cutoff jean shorts and a t-shirt to work. And I started meeting people who obviously worked in the entertainment business. And so a couple of them were like, why don't we set you up at an agency? You know, you could get a job as an assistant. And I was like, okay, let me, you know, whatever that is. And so I met two different agents. One was in television and one was in movies. And they were like, we both want to hire you as our assistant, you choose. And I didn't really, I knew, I knew much more about television at that point. So I thought, okay, I'll go the TV route. And that's basically how it started. I mean, I remember walking into, this was ICM at the time, I remember walking in and there was just, everyone was young and everyone seemed cool and happy and there was energy and it was exciting you know I was still a starstruck young you know girl in her 20s and it seemed really like yes this is what I want to do and then once I started really recognized that I could use my law degree and that I could negotiate deals with a different kind of confidence and energy than I would have been able to had I not gone to law school so I was just wanted to work my way up. I loved it. Wow. Very cool. And, and, and work your way up. You did, right? I mean, you, you became pretty successful, worked your way up to WME. I mean, I saw that. Could you give us a little, a little highlight of your trajectory and maybe pepper in some good stories? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Well, there's good stories in the book. Yeah. 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 Put them in the book. Yeah. (laughs) I was working at ICM and, um, And I ended up leaving there after two years and I went to UTA as an assistant and um, I was working there for a while. And what had happened was something really traumatic had happened in my life. And I really, my alcohol use really kicked into high gear with, with drugs and cocaine sort of became my drug of choice. And I, you know, in a lot of circles that was, it was okay. It was about, I was partying, it was champagne, cocaine. It didn't seem anything wrong. And I was still having a lot of fun. And then, you know, I started hiding my own drugs and drinking before we would start drinking and doing all these little things that started leading towards that I was having more and more of an addiction issue. And so then eventually in 2002, I'd gotten sober from drugs and alcohol. And it wasn't until about 2004 when I started to have a lot more success as an agent. It really took me until I got sober. I just want to be clear before I really was doing anything that 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 mattered. You know, I was a I was a young baby agent. I was overwhelmed. I hadn't done my own work. I was living with this underlying trauma and PTSD that I didn't know what it was. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to mask it with drugs and alcohol. And in 2004, we made a little movie called Wedding Crashers. And I had represented Vince and Owen at the time. We put that movie together from scratch. And both of them had worked with David Dopkin before in different movies so that he seemed the obvious choice to direct it. And we put that movie together from start to finish. And uh, obviously it was a huge hit. 
And from there, it's sort of their trajectory skyrocketed, as did mine. And I really started wearing that ego mask of I'm Lisa Hallerman, a successful talent agent, and really put all of that energy, although I wasn't drinking and using anymore, into work and into other people and solving other people's you know, problems and trying to manage and make other people's dreams come true and started to lose myself along the way. So despite the quote unquote external success, and I say that because I really had to redefine what success was for me and look at my achievements and be grateful for them and proud of them. But that success also had to be an internal job. And so when I woke up five years sober and really felt like I wanted to celebrate that milestone, instead I was met with, yeah, but it's a little bit of, I'm not still, I'm not really happy Mm -hmm. on the inside. And I feel like I'm missing something. And that sort of brought me to my journey of, being curious about what else was out there and looking for other things. But, you know, that's really hard to do when you're sort of have these golden handcuffs and you're in this job and you are living this life to be able to say to anyone, even yourself, "Mm, I'm not so sure. Maybe I need to be doing something else. Seems a little bit like, you know, a champagne problem. And so I was... I thought, okay, I'll go to another agency that will solve the sort of issues that I'm having, again, with the external, and walked across the street to Endeavor a year before it became WME, and realized "Mm, it's not really the place as much as it is the job, and maybe I need to be doing something else. When you, during those first five years before you kind of hit that emotional bottom, like what, what did your recovery look like or consist of? I know you say you got sober, but then like during those five years when you were putting all of your energy into work, what were you, what did your self-care practices look like? Did you go to AA? Were you doing any kind of, you know, spiritual practices at that time? Yes. And, 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 and let me tail and bookend it with this. Like, how did, how did that bottom kind of manifest itself? Other than you just kind of realizing you weren't happy. Like, was there something, like, something yeah. that triggered that realization that you were like, holy crap, like, I'm missing a huge piece here? Yes. It was a slow burn, but yes, from the very beginning, I was, I was going to 12-step meetings and there was a 7.30 meeting at the log cabin here in Los Angeles. And I would go every morning and go get a bite to eat afterwards and go straight to work. And I did that all the time. And I went to lots of meetings and I went every day, like I said, before work, which really set me up. And... There was also that first year, it was really hard. It was really hard to be able to go out and participate in the things that I needed to for my job and go to premieres and go to different parties and sort of live a similar lifestyle, but now without drinking or drugs. And I think that's the biggest sort of that's the that's the hardest hurdle in the beginning of sobriety is that you think, okay, I just need to be abstinent and then I can still live this same lifestyle. And the truth is, is that you really, sobriety is about a lifestyle change yeah. and you have to start behaving as a sober woman and living a life of, you know, grace and behaving in a certain way, or you're showing up to make more and more amends in sobriety. (laughs) And so, yes, I was religious about doing my 12 steps, about meetings, about service. And I had sponsees and I had a sponsor 
And all of that was happening. And it really saved my life in, in, in the beginning. I mean, there is no, none of this is possible without my sobriety. And the 12 steps for me really helped me with all of that. But what started to happen is the more and more I was focused on the external things, you know, the job title, becoming partner, having this corner office, buying this house, having this car, all of these things that if you think I just get there or I just get here and, you know, moving to LA, I had no money, nothing no money whatsoever, needed to buy a car, needed to buy a mattress, hadn't saved any money as an attorney. So really worked myself, you know, all by myself to get to where I was. And sort of then having those things, but realizing I'm just not fulfilled. And I don't even know what that thing is that's missing. And I think I started to realize that I wasn't anybody else's higher power. Like I couldn't make some of the things happen that people wanted me to make happen. And there's, you know, there's a story that that I tell about, you know, a client being really upset with a specific um, incident that had happened. And basically what they were asking me was to, you know, stop the rain. So there wasn't a rain delay at the World Series so that this particular ad could run during the time slot. And it was like, I just remember having this moment of yet believing like, yeah, I could do everything. And then when they said that to me of like, you know, well, it just shouldn't be raining or whatever they said. It didn't just like <laughs> stop the rain. I actually thought to myself for a split, split second, can I stop the Because you're so... <laughs> yeah, let me give it a shot. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. You're so programmed to... Projected you on the spiritual journey that you went on. Do with. whatever <laughs> it takes. Call anyone. Do whatever yeah, it takes. Yeah. Let me make a that you're calls. That you're so blinded by your humanness <laughs> and I thought okay okay like clearly I've lost my way you know wow. and that was just uh that was a moment of clarity for me for sure that is fascinating I, I wonder if and and kind of a hypothetical but it a lot of what I'm hearing is you know, like you said, you have to, it's a lifestyle change when you get sober, but really it's, it's an identity shift. It's an identity yes. change. And I mean, it's just inevitable. I mean, I, I think there are some people that may be able to kind of finagle their way into sobriety and, and stick kind of in a similar path that they're on. But the majority of us do have to shift our identities into, and, and into a, a major, um, just growth period. It's a maturation mm -hmm. stage. Um, but, uh, you know, hearing your story in the, in the sense of, of where you were and where you were placed in the career space, it just didn't mesh with all the stuff that you were working on personally. And then in your professional life, it was just this big headbutt, it sounded like, or at least it got to that place. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. So when I first got sober, everyone was talking about the disease or the addiction or that you would still have stinking thinking, even though you were sober, because it was something of that sort. And I, I remember really early on, I named my addiction Trixie. And I really wanted to take her and make her a, a different person. Like I didn't want to show up the same way that I was showing up. So it was almost like I was wearing this mask of this, this woman, Trixie, while I was in my addiction. And now I was ready to take off that mask and put it over here and really figure out who Elisa was. And the problem is, is that you you have no idea. So here I am, 33 years old, taking off the mask of Trixie, and I'm like, who in the hell am I? And that was really hard. I mean, there's a couple of stories that I tell where I'm driving 
and I stop at a light and I'm in this old Alfa Romeo that I had that, you know, was like my favorite car and I saved up to buy it. And, but it's still a little grimy from like a little bit of the drug use. And now it's, there's like a little dust on the floor, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) And I'm just like, not that into it. Anyway, I'm in my Alfa and this girl is coming at me as we drive past each other. And she is in this big black truck and she has this blonde, blonde, flowy hair and she's, the music's playing and her window's open and she drives by me and she just looks like the epitome of happiness. And I kid you not, I go home, I dye my hair blonde, blonde, and I (laughs) trade in my alpha for a black truck. And that's what I would do. I would steal little pieces of other people's identity. And I mean, Trixie would dress like, you know, in these crazy outfits with a lot of skin showing and really loud and boas and sunglasses. And I mean, the whole thing. Mm. And so I would, I really didn't know like what my style was. Like, what did I even like to wear? And so I would do this thing where every morning I would get dressed for work and I would put something on and I would literally say like, would Nicole Kidman wear this? And if the answer was like, no, Nicole Kidman would not wear that, then I would take it off. (laughs) But like these became my barometers for building a sense of self in a lot of ways. That is cool. I, you're definitely not alone in that in that <laughs> yeah. space. He wears a lot of boas. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> I could see that. I could. It see got that wet on the way in here. Um, I had could to take see that. it off. <laughs> One of the things, and and I, I want to move on because I want to talk about your book and all the cool stuff to do with sobriety. But I think this could be a prequel to that, um, mm-hmm. or, or a segue. You know, I, I'm a a member of AA, NA, like I got sober in, in 12-step rooms, um, not as active anymore. Um, but one of the things that I always kind of, you know, when I talk to people about 12-step stuff and, and in the book, As Bill Sees It, Bill Wilson was quoted saying that AA is spiritual kindergarten. And this is a common theme that I've seen over the years with people that kind of hit five years of, you know, hit around the five, seven-year mm-hmm. mark. And they've been super active in AA, and they hit this kind of plat- like spiritual plateau um, when there's like this calling or this like ambitious drive that kind of. And, and this happened to me. It was like there, mm-hmm. there's there's got to be something, and there's got to be something more than this. Or you know, I, I think that my purpose is is more than being a 12-step sponsor and just not picking up no matter what and kind of living my life of service in the rooms of AA. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and I feel that seems to be very similar to kind of where you were at, and that was, you know, the catalyst to you saying, you know what, I, I need to do more work here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, what did that work start to look like? So you hit that five-year mark, you you – we're like, I need more than this. Yeah, your passions are shifting. Yeah, but but yeah. you were like, you know, I, I, I not only need more, but I want to do more. Yeah, so yeah. what'd you do? So <laughs> I started reading books. I started getting curious about what else was out there, right? And um, it's actually, to bring it full circle, how I met Gabby. So she had just written her first book, How to Add More Ing. And we had a mutual friend and she called me up and said, I'm going to Costa Rica, this girl, she just wrote this book and she's doing a retreat in Costa Rica. Do you want to come? And I just said, yes. And then we were on the plane and she said, you know, what'd you think of the book? And I was like, oh, I didn't read the book. And she said, because <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. So she said, well, you need to read the book before we get there. So I read the book on the plane and that was sort of my first entree into, okay, let me, let me, let me learn a little bit more because I didn't grow up with this sort of very religious or very spiritual or any of that. And so it was just sort of dipping my toe in and one book led to another book and another book. And then 
I became, I met Marianne Williamson and we became very good friends and I was helping her with a project in the, in entertainment. And she ended up being such a huge mentor in my life as well. And I just kept pulling these little threads of things that were interesting to me. Right. And then what happened was, is that when I left, when I left UTA and I went to Endeavor and realized, oh, this isn't like, I, I need to be doing something else. And I kind of, I went, I went away and I took a bunch of books with me and I, one of the things that I had read was, okay, make a list of all these things that you ever wanted to do as a kid. What was your dream job? What did you want to do? What did you want to be? Anything like that. And so I had this long list of all of these things that I thought were either really interesting or that I wanted to do. And I, the three of the top things were, I wanted to be of service to women in a bigger way. I wanted to um, become an ER doctor. Huh. <laughs> and, um, oh my God, what was the other one? Um, it's escaping me at the moment. And so what happened was I decide, all right, like, it's just an exercise. Let's not rule anything out. And so I started looking at, all right, well, what if I were to take prerequisite classes and then go take my MCATs? And what if I, how would I be of service to more women? Oh, and I wanted to learn more about addiction. And so I thought, all right, I'm going to look into maybe volunteering at a sober living for women, you know, a nonprofit. And I'm going to start looking at classes that I could take to get me set up to maybe take the MCATs. And very quickly, I realized, all right, there's a reason I didn't go to med school and I went to law school. I'm terrible at math and this isn't going to work. So, but in my search, I was at looking at UCLA website and I found these classes in drug and alcohol counseling. And it was a year and a half program and you would get a certificate in learning drug and alcohol counseling. And I thought, that's it. I'll do that. And so every Tuesday and Thursday night from seven to 10, after being an agent, I would go to school and I would start learning. And that started to light me up in a way that I hadn't felt in a really, really long time. And I was that learning and that curiosity became one of my passions, which eventually led me to retire, open a sober living at first, and then eventually go back to school and get my master's and doctorate in depth psychology. It wasn't until I got to Pacifica Graduate School where I got my doctorate that I started learning about soul. And for me, that felt like the missing piece. Spirituality, you know, spirit and soul became sort of one of those words that people use interchangeably now in the present. They don't really have a big distinction. But in ancient times, they were very different. And they looked at spirit as something outside of yourself, something of a higher power, right, if you will, something that is up and outward, um, these sort of spiritual peaks, uh, moving forward, a future, you know, a manifesting a future. All of these things are sort of spirit oriented, whereas soul was more of our own personal, unique sort of fingerprint that we all had, an internal guiding force and a meaning making machine of our experiences in the way that we saw them through the lens of soul. And that made sense to me. That felt like, okay, what I need is to start doing soul work. And so that became my trajectory. And that's where the book ended up coming from was sort of that journey into what, what is soul? What is soul loss? How does it relate to trauma and addiction? And my dissertation was asking the question of can doing soul-centered work lead to long-term recovery from addiction? 
And so that's sort of the trajectory of what happened. Out of, out of everything that you learned in the cl clinical world and your studies of depth psychology and all your schooling, mm -hmm. what mapped on the best to your spiritual understanding of the soul? I think what there a lot so, so much you know it's so complex depth psychology is yeah and you know, tell us rooted. a little bit about depth psychology yeah so depth and it's d-e-p-t-h because a lot of people are like what is she saying um so it is it is a, its foundation is rooted in the unconscious so carl Jung pretty much talked about the that we have what's conscious to us and then we have what's unconscious which is made up of both our both our personal unconscious and the collective unconscious and then another sort of founding father that falls under the tradition of depth psychology is James Hillman and he was really the founder of archetypal psychology which is a really about taking these complexes and these archetypes and what do they look like individually for each of us and these two things you know depth psychology requires an imagination and a curiosity of making what is unknown known there are plenty of times when things unconsciously happen and we react to them right we see that all the time but what if there was a way to actually bring the unconscious things up to our conscious in a way that was more deliberate and knowing so that we weren't ruled by these things that lived in the unknown? Mm -hmm. And that was something very interesting to me. And because I, because I was coming from the entertainment industry and I love being creative and stories and mythology and images were very important to me. This, I really gravitated towards this type of psychology. I knew I wasn't going to be sort of that one-on-one -on -one psychologist that was going to see people every hour on the hour. That was not something I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to build a business and I knew I was building a company that essentially was based off of the talent agency blueprint but was going to be a place where people could come and ask the question like, now what, when it came to their mental and behavioral health and wellness? And that's essentially what it became. I wanted there to be a place where people came to me as a lawyer, they had a legal issue, they came to me for career advice as a talent agent. And where were people supposed to go if they had a mental health issue? or they were suffering from addiction, or they were traumatized in a way that I was and didn't know where to go. Who guides you on that path and educates you on what's out there so you don't have to Google it or ask your neighbor where they went for this, that, or the other thing, and then really advocate for you through this really complicated process. You're like a so, consultant. I am a consultant. No, I know, but like uh, oh, consultant. 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 Oh my god! Yeah, there, yeah, there, you, there you go. That. You got write, it. It's write your, that down it's, somewhere. It's your <laughs> consultant. A consultant. Got it. Got it. That uh, <clears throat> holy shit! That's fascinating stuff, man. And, I, and it, I love it. it. I know he's he's gonna be itching to dig and dig and dig and dig. Yeah, I'm gonna have to call you yeah. after this. I'm gonna have to keep really it yeah, so our can. listeners understand yeah. some stuff. Um, but I do want to talk a little <laughs> bit about the subconscious because uh, when we discuss the conscious and the subconscious, I think people have kind of a, or they might assume they know what that means, but would love to hear it from someone who has absolutely studied it to its depth. Um, yeah, in layman's terms, what what actually is in yeah, so, the subconscious? So let's look at um, let's look let's go back to Trixie. We'll use her as an example. Okay, mine was so, named Slick, so we could talk about Slick too. Great, everyone's got one, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. And well, at least people that are listening hopefully to this. <laughs> so, and even if it's not your addiction, it just can be your your alter ego or who comes out when you're 
right? People talk about their inner, right. Or your inner child, if they're doing parts work or something like that. So in the beginning, I just thought Trixie was this mask and I was going to put her over here. Right. And, and then I was going to focus on who's Elisa. So that was before I went to school. When I got to school and I realized that, you know, there's a, there's a term called the imaginal that Henry Corbin, who is, um, who he really came up with this word, the imaginal, because when he was describing the imagination, it felt limited in what lives in our inner world. It's not, it's not our imagination. Our imagination feels made up or pretend or fairy tale or childlike. But the imaginal is a very real inner realm or inner world. And so what I started to learn was that I could personify, which is something that we do in archetypal psychology, Trixie, and really understand and make her this three-dimensional part of me that is separate from Elisa, but also very much a part of me with her own personality and her own style and her own feelings and thoughts and all of it and her own sort of purpose and really being able to dialogue with that and understand that she's also maturing as I am, but, you know, she's very specific and she's not necessarily she doesn't lead anymore but when she speaks and I can tell the difference at this point or I can meditate on it and go ask her but when she speaks she's often noticing something that maybe Elisa isn't and it's not that I would follow her direction as to you know her manipulative or you know crazy ways of doing things but she's insightful in, in my life at this point, 20 years into my sobriety after doing a lot of work with her. So, but if you, so Trixie sort of lives in my personal unconscious, but if we go even further into the collective unconscious, we, this is where the archetypes live and archetypes are these universal figures that people just understand. So this mother archetype or the villain or the hero. Um, Trixie is just, it's interesting that I named her Trixie, but there's the trickster, right? As the archetype also. And so it was like taking this archetype, making her my own. These are the things that live essentially in this underworld. This is the place that I talk about where we go when we're forced into a dark night of the soul where we're pushed into this underworld where we feel fragmented. We feel like we lost a part of ourselves. People will say, I don't, I don't even feel like myself anymore. I don't even, you know, part of me is missing. I don't even know what it is, right? We say these things. And if you think about the visual of what they really mean, that's what lives in this inner space. And for everyone, it's different you know, and it takes, it takes practice, but essentially it's like, if you've ever gone, have you ever gone scuba diving or snorkeling? Mm -hmm. And you know, when the minute you go into the, below the surface of the ocean, there's an entire world down there where you're like, oh my God, there's no, the sounds, the, the colors, the, the plants, the, you know, everything. And it is such a distinction between above the surface of the water and below the surface of the water. And that's how I would explain the unconscious. Where's the overlap there between like the, the depth psychology and the archetypes when it comes to like energy and trauma and somatic experience? Because I, I mean, I, I feel like intuitively that there's probably a lot of um, a, a lot of similarities between those two things. They're just spoken in different languages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So 
Great question. So like I said, the dissertation was asked that question. And when I interviewed my participants who were all sober at different lengths of time, whether it was one day or 20 years or whatever it was, and I asked them very specific questions to elicit stories where soul might be, um, without telling them obviously what I was exactly doing. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole, it became very obvious to me that they were doing soul-centered work, whether that was with images or active imagination or listening to a dream, lots of different ways, um, really tapping into that inner voice, right? And but they didn't know what became clear. The caveat was, yes, they were doing it, but they didn't know they were doing it. They didn't have language for it and they couldn't do it whenever they wanted it. It was just something that was happening as, you know, as soul makes itself known in its own way, but it wasn't anything that they could dive into just when they needed to. So that's when I started really recognizing that there needed to be more language around soul and soul work in recovery. And that's where the concept of doing, well, that's where the concept of sobriety came from. It was a modality of healing for trauma and addiction and became essentially a lifestyle that I led and then was teaching my clients how to lead. And so basically you know, living a, so back to your question about trauma specifically. So all of these other modalities, I mean, we could list, right? The different types of psych yeah. modalities and specific trauma modalities, EMDR and somatic experiencing and psychodrama and CBT and DBT and all of these things. And I've done lots of them on myself personally. And this is not, to the exclusion of any of these, but rather this is <laughs> the thread yeah. that connects. It's the connective tissue, right? Underneath all of them. And because your definition of soul, because your connection to soul is also personal, only you are going to be able to, it's not, we can't do any sort of study per se that isn't just we can't do any sort of quantitative study on soul work right it's going to be such a phenomenological study where it's so personal to you so this is something that you can do on your own this is the way that you can live on your own and I talk about in the book the 12 steps of the soul journey and knowing where you are on these soul journeys, and we go through many, many of them, really helps with understanding how not to be afraid with where you are at that particular point in your life. Because this is essentially the trajectory that will end up happening, if you will. And I really see trauma as what it is, right? Where there's, it gets imprinted and this pattern gets set in your brain, and then you feel it as a felt sense in your experience in the present time as if it were happening in the past, and all of that. But what does it do to your soul? These are the questions I ask. What lies underneath the symptoms of trauma and addiction? So what does trauma do to your soul? Well, maybe on the outside, it looks like dissociation, but on the inside, it really looks like a fragmented sense of yourself, where your whole life is all of a sudden in pieces in front of you. If you've ever, ever experienced grief or heartbreak, some sort of loss, an accident, it feels like you've been broken into a million pieces. And you're sitting there looking at these pieces all over the floor thinking, this is insurmountable. This is, I'm never going to be able to put these pieces back together. And if I do, I will never look the same. Yeah. And knowing that truth is terrifying 
and we get frozen and we lose the ability to have any sort of connection, not only to ourselves, but to others. And wouldn't it be amazing to learn how to deal with that soul loss through the structure of a dark night or through the, these different ways of the imaginal and how we look at the underworld and how we look at what's below the surface so that we could do that work simultaneously while doing these other amazing modalities that we've created. I love it. What, what do you think the key component is to start something like that? So like if you're in a place, you know, everything that you've studied and throughout your experience, like if you're in a place of, of, of feeling like you're broken and, mm. you know, every, all the pieces are scattered on the floor and it looks unsurmountable, like you said, where, where do we grab onto? What, mm -hmm. where would you, like, out of everything that you've done, what do you think is the most appropriate first step for somebody that feels like that? Well, I talk about in the book an experience, you know, any of the experiences that I've had before I learned what sobriety really was or developed this. I was, you know, you're in that situation and you're looking for anything outside of yourself to make you feel better because the inner work is just, you don't know what to do. Yeah. yeah right. Painful. Yeah. Right. So, but I did have a, something traumatic and this, this immense heartbreak when I already understood and knew and was practicing sobriety. So what I, one of the things I did aside from all the other outside work that I did um, was I really needed to put an image to the pain of what happened. The story of what happened Right, the words alone of like, well, then this happened and this happened and then this happened. And now it wasn't enough to explain the pain inside, the yeah. brokenness inside, right? So I wrote a story of the, of, of, and an, 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 an created imagery out of the pain. And which was very different from what actually happened, right? And then I worked on that piece. And I worked on that piece by, you know, there's a meditation that I do where I go into this cave that I've created in my mind, where it is a very safe place that I've decorated over the years. And in you know, there's very comfortable pillows and there's very yummy blankets. And every time I go down there, I leave another candle. So it's brighter than it used to be. And it's not as scary and it's comfortable. So when I go down there or when I'm forced down there, it's a place where I can maybe look at a couple of those pieces and go, all right, let's, let's work on this. But you can't just walk around dark nights of the soul are not bad days. They're not, I feel blue or I'm not okay right now. There are long periods of time where it's going to take time to put yourself back together. And you can't do that every single day or just an hour in the therapist's office. You, It's something that's living with you. So knowing that there's a space that you can go to privately after the your day is done after you put the kids to bed after you went to work and showed up and put the mask on or whatever that is that you can go to and go let's 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 sit with this and let's not be afraid of the dark because this this container for me it's my cave but this container is going to be a safe space for me to alchemize this pain into purpose. And it's not about, oh, everything happens for a reason because that's not true. Everything doesn't happen for a reason. There are things that are so unreasonable and so unfair and so traumatic and horrific that happen to people. It's not about making sense of what happened. It's about 
making sense of how you are going to be transformed because of this experience and that you're then going to be able to transform yourself and then more importantly be able to share it with somebody else that's going through the same thing and that's how we heal the soul of the world mm. wow um so give us a little a little light on how this work doesn't necessarily only apply to you know rock bottomish falling apart i'm in a million pieces spaces and the work can be done for for others as well who are going through day-to-day -day, acute whatever you want to call it i mean that's i assume that would be the answer if i were to say mm -hmm. now can you apply this work to people yes. who aren't at their end <laughs> yeah i think that um really right we all hear these whispers and this is essentially like step one on the on the journey. So you're going through your ordinary life. You're you know you're going to work, coming home, having dinner, you're watching Netflix, whatever it is that you're doing. You're just la 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 through my ordinary life. Yeah. And and then every now and again you hear these whispers saying, "Do I love this person?" Is this a job for me? Is this all there is? What am I doing? Who am I? Who am I now that I turned 40? Who am I now that I, you know, is this what I want? Now, now that my kids left for school, like, well, what am I doing with my life? Yeah. What, right? the, what the hell is going on here? That's, yeah. that's yeah. the start. <laughs> I think I was thinking about in the last question. It's like, you got to grab that and... So these and get curious yep. about it. Yes. So these are the whispers from soul. And we all have them. And most of us go, mm, shush, shush, not yeah. now. Yeah. Too big of a question. Yeah. Just too big. Can't even. My ordinary life is just fine. Like, Scary. let's just keep keep the status quo. We don't like to change. We're human. We don't like change. Yeah. And we don't listen. But the thing about soul is the whispers will not stop. They will get louder and louder. And then eventually a brick house will fall on your head and you will be forced to sit still and listen. So what if we didn't wait for that moment, right? Where we lose the job or we get divorced or this happens or there's a pandemic and we're just forced to sit still. Like what if we were along the way getting curious about the whispers and made a decision to pull the thread a little bit? And I talk about like step four being then a guide appears if we're just willing to be curious. So maybe it's somebody that has something that you're like, oh, this seems interesting. I want to how did they do that? Or you read a book or you watch something or you see something on the news. These, this is when these guides are appearing that you need to start pulling these threads and keep getting a little bit more curious. And then eventually step five, take this leap of faith and go on this little exploration journey the soul journey. And you don't have to quit. I didn't quit my job. I didn't make any big moves. I didn't break up with my boy. I didn't do anything big. I just started a bit of my soul journey over here. Yeah. So I get the fact that people can't leave their marriage or can't leave their job or can't do any of these things. I couldn't either. But it doesn't mean that you can't have a side hustle <laughs> of soul work going on. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. That eventually might lead to making changes in those other spaces. Our show is about normalizing the conversation around alcohol, but ultimately about everything you just said, being aware of things that we, we, we might want to change in our lives. Now, we do sub-focus heavily in the alcohol space, but mm -hmm. what a perfect place to, to segue into. I mean, all of our listeners, uh, you know, the whole sober curious movement, all these things that are going on right now is is just falling right into those whispers. Yeah. You know, am I drinking too much? Is it affecting my, is it doing this? Is it doing that? And we, and what do we do? We either drink a little more to quiet those whispers or we just naturally shut those things up. 
And that is just a perfect, perfect way to get our listeners to think about it in that space. Yeah. Listen to those whispers. Exactly. Exactly. Listen to the whispers. I can't wait to read your book and dive into this framework. And I mean, it's just it, yeah. everything that you're talking about and everything that you've studied are like huge passions of mine. And I, I just, you know, I got my mind goes a million miles a minute and I've, I've never taken the time to like figure out like what you <laughs> What it feels like you figured out. Right. So right. Um, I'm really, really pumped. Tell us more, a little bit more about the book. So the book is out now. It's called Soulbriety, and you can buy it anywhere books are sold. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. I it's also out in audio, which I did myself. So it's my it's my voice. Great. And um, yeah, I hope you enjoy it. I hear it's a really quick read. And it's told in stories because that's the way soul speaks to us in the language of storytelling. And um, so I hope Sweet. you enjoy it. I'm Perfect. dying to hear from you, Patrick, after you read it. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Oh, I'm gonna you yeah, will. I'm gonna be annoying the shit out of you. Um, yeah. What, what yeah. else do you have going on? Like, you got any other projects coming down the the pipe? Like, yeah. What What else? Plugs. What, what, do some what plugs. Yeah, what else are you doing? What do you? How can we support you? Um, that's great. So I'm, yeah, I mean, I'm out and about doing different speaking events and, um, going to different places and speaking about sobriety. And I speak a lot about all the things that we covered today, not just about sobriety, but about changing your careers, about going on your soul journey, about, um, drug and alcohol. You know, I, my, my doctorate was in-depth psychology, but with a focus on trauma and neuroscience. So I speak about a lot of different things. And um, I have a, class, a course coming up, which you can look at online, which is how to write a soul-centered memoir. Because in doing that, it really sort of shifted the paradigm. And I'm doing it with Kelly Notorious, who was my ed personal editor. And she's written books on, you know, how to write a book, but we sort of turned that on its head when we had to write, um, when she was sort of giving me outlines and I kept saying, no, 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 I need to do it this way. I need to do it this way. And so she was coaching me in her way. And then we sort of shifted the whole paradigm so that I was able to write a really soul-centered memoir based on soul. So we're doing that. And um, and then I'm really working on the master class and the next book of taking you through the steps of sobriety. So Sweet. if you enjoy the book, know that that's coming up next. Sweet. Sweet. Love it, Elisa. This all sounds great. Thank you for sharing all that. Thank you for coming on. We've got two final questions that we like to ask our guests. I'm going to let Patrick okay. ask the first one. What are the three biggest benefits that you've realized after removing alcohol from your life? Um, well, I get to live. You're alive. Yes. Yes. So that's a big one. I have a clarity in my life day to day that I didn't know was possible. And I get to show up in ways with not just my for myself but for my family and my closest friends and be present in a way that I was never able to do before in the hard times and in the celebratory times I mean that's there's no better gift in life than being able to be present in those moments and not miss them yeah yeah great answers Final question, Dr. Elisa Hallerman, why do you care so damn much? I love that girl that I was and have enormous empathy for her. And it breaks my heart to think of what she went through and the pain and that there was no one coming to get her to help her fix it. And in being able to do that for myself, there's no greater purpose or pleasure than I have in giving that to other people. That is 
my life journey is being able to shine in a way, even when I'm feeling at my lowest to be able to say, you can do it. You got this. Lovely. Feel you. Feel you. Big time. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you guys. It was yeah. awesome. This, this was, this was a big favorite of mine so far. Good. Well, that means a lot to us. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.